Amen to the truths in those songs. Christ uh, has died and is risen for our sins. That's a wonderful, great truth as we sing this morning. Uh, what a wonderful day to be with you. We want to welcome all of you who are here. I didn't get a chance to go around and greet all our guests and visitors, but we welcome you from, uh, from all afar uh, across the country, as well as just in our own neck of the woods. We're so glad to have you rejoicing with us. And, and we are our testimony today as a church is that Christ is risen. All right, all right, a little old school there. But we'd like to do that. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Oh, man. When I say Christ is risen, you say he is risen indeed. Okay, let's do that one more time. Three times the charm. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Okay, all right. All right, that's going to be our new church tradition, all right? Not, a, not the same as the doctrines of men, but, you know, a doctrines of God. But, you know, it's going to be tradition, okay? We're going to have. Uh, Lord will remember that next year. Anyways, so glad to be worshiping the Lord today. And uh, we, of all people, should be rejoicing uh, because we have know and have confidence that Christ our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's, he died for our sins. He paid for it in complete fullness, and he's rose from the grave to show the complete victory over death and sin. So just a wonderful joy. Uh, glad you're here to be with me. Oh, man. Uh, I don't know why our worship team. We've got to change our worship team because they always make me cry. They always make me cry. I, I just, you know, just overwhelmed by emotions as we sing these, strong, these songs. I think they're just guys are playing something making me cry. I don't know what it is, but what a joy to be with the Lord today, uh, with you all today. Anyways, we want to turn our attentions to God's Word as we, as we seek to, to turn our thoughts to the, the joy of our salvation in Christ. And so, uh, on this Easter morning, we remember the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, do we not? And uh, uh, He, having died on the cross for our sins, and then on the third day, rose from the grave. I appreciate Elder Bill reading for us the, the Easter story, the Easter story for us. And when we read this in the scriptures, we, we believe it to be true, do not we not? We believe in the resurrection. The resurrection is true because God's word tells us so. You know, one of the songs I tell, teach my daughter is that, uh, well, and many of our nurseries, uh, Jesus loves me, this I know. Oh, I examine all the facts, and they're consistent with the Scripture. No, because the Bible tells me so, okay? For the Bible tells me so. And that's a wonderful thing. We know that Jesus Christ is risen because the Bible tells us so. And, that's, that, that we, and we believe this by faith because God, in his sovereignty and his providence, reveals it to us. He opened up our eyes, our blind eyes, to the truth so that we who were in darkness saw the light and we received the light in, into our lives. And, uh, you know, but of course, in our world, we come across skeptics. And there are times when we ourselves, even as believers, can, can go through maybe doubt. And that's, that's part of the human, our weak, living in flesh and blood. And so for those of us who would like some of the, just the encouragement in the, the, res, in the truth of the resurrection beyond the scriptures, I'd like to give you three lines of evidence for the resurrection of Christ. Now, this is just an introduction. This is not my sermon, but it's three, three lines of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So they encourage you to think about it and meditate upon these truths. And these are probably, if you read any kind of apologist, these three are going to be found in their list of things. These are reasons why we believe in the resurrection, evidence for the resurrection. Not why we believe, but evidence for the resurrection. Uh, so number one is the empty tomb, right? The empty tomb is a confirmation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What the scriptures say are true. You know, there are 
that empty tomb. The fact is, if you go there, uh, even today, people can go there, or at least the Holy Sepulcher, and, and you find, and they can look at, oh, this is where Jesus' body was laid, or they say that he was laid. And you look all around, you do not find any body of Jesus. And it's not just us 2,000 years later, but all throughout history. You can imagine when the saints started saying, oh, Jesus is risen, his enemies, the Pharisees, scribes, the, for sure the Romans, they would have come and they, they would have made sure, hey, if that body is going to be found, let's find that body because we know his disciples took it. Let's, let's go find it. Let's, or, you know, some, whatever way they're going to try to come up with one. But as of today, no body has been found. Jesus' body is not in the tomb. It will not be found in the tomb. Every once in a while, you, you see some histor- historian, archaeologist think, oh, they found something about Jesus. Like, oh, you know, just wait, just wait. You know, it will come through that, oh, oh, that's not Jesus. Okay. But the second line of truth, a uh, line of evidence, is the multiple appearances. Multiple appearances. Now, <clears throat> Jesus, in the corner of the scripture, appeared to over several hundred people. Several hundred people. He made, and this is not just. Re- in one of the gospel writers, that's just an act saying that. But if you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the gospels, as well as Acts, you see that there are different individual sources, all five different sources. They're all primary sources. And they all testify that Jesus would appear to different groups of people, all independent. And if you were going to, you know, and that alone is a, it's, is a testimony of the reality of, uh, of the resurrection. You could go and ask them, did you see the resurrected Christ? And they'd say, oh, yes, I saw the resurrected Christ. You could ask hundreds of people. And, you know, and there's, you know, there are alternate kind of explanations that people try to come up with, but none of them match the facts, uh, the truth, as the simple explanation that Christ is resurrected. That's why there were so many multiple people who saw the risen Savior. Number three, the third line of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the, the beginning of the Christian faith, the beginning of the, of the church, the explosion that we see in Acts. What, you know, we think about it, the Jewish people, the, the Jewish uh, disciples, they were, just, they were looking for a Messiah. Even the, the 12, the 11, really, 11, you know, Judas, don't know what he's looking for. But the, they were looking for a Messiah who would reign, right? He would reign on earth. They had zero concept that he was going to suffer and die. That was the farthest thing from the mind, their mind. And so for them to think that, there is a, that Christ, the Messiah, would die on earth, and of worse of all the worst deaths to die on a cross, the most humiliating, the most the, the death that's preserved only for the lowest of criminals. That's not what that's not what the King of Kings, the Messiah, is supposed to do. His death was would have been a great defeat. It would have deflated their hopes in the Messiah. And as we read in the scriptures, they were deflated. They were hiding, cowering in fear, afraid that they were going to. Be experienced the same. Peter himself denied Christ three times. What happened? What is the explanation for why these cowering disciples, not only the, two, the 11, but the others that were gathered in the upper room, all of a sudden would turn around and become instruments of which they would run, that they would convey this gospel truth that Jesus Christ did die on the cross for his side, and he is risen indeed running around telling the most crazy of stories that a dead man that we saw, everyone saw crucified is now alive. Not only just the boldness of that, just, run, just imagine to go around and say something that you know is a, is a lie and go just pronounce and go out and, and just try to tell people that that's the truth. How long could you sustain that? People start calling you crazy. Say, no, you're nuts. Jesus, no, no, no. 
But then when they start saying he needs to be put away, he needs to be put in jail. He's harmful. You know, that's what happened to the disciples. With the exception of John, all of them took the message of the gospel, proclaimed it far and wide. They They suffered, and then they died for that truth. And because they were willing to suffer and die for the truth of the gospel, that Christ died for their sins and rose from their grave, the church exploded because of this proclamation. The ch- people saw uh, that was evidence and testimony of the reality of the resurrection of Christ. That's the only, the only explanation for the beginning of the Christian church. Even to this day, 2,000 years later, it's because of the resurrected Savior. Well, in like good Old Testament fashion, I've said I'd give you three, well, Three, even four. So I'll give you four, okay? There are four lines of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, and that is the transformation in your life, okay? The transformation in your life. You know, that is, there are some people who are not going to ever believe that there's an empty tomb. They're not going to believe that they're going to say the Bible's just, just all, you know, uh, that's just all made up. Uh, they're going to think that the, the Christian faith, that's all basically people died and, and grew the church because for, for a lie. Uh, they're going to persist in that. But there's one thing that they cannot resist, one thing that they cannot deny, is the transformation that takes place in a believer of Jesus Christ. As those of us who have known Jesus Christ, who know the Savior, know that Christ died for us as sinners who deserve nothing but the wrath of God, his, his perfect justice, to know that he sent his son in my place and that through faith in him, I might receive his righteousness, imputed credit to my account. Well, that makes me want to live for Christ. And not only does it make me want to live for Christ, but I, my own strength, can't do anything. Christ enables us. He make, transforms us. He changes us. He's, he's changing all of us who are believers and making us more like Christ. And there's a change, a transformation in our lives that is a clear and powerful testimony to the, our, the people that see our lives that, there's something different about you. They might not be able to put their finger on it. But if you have the opportunity, you'll say, oh, I just use my own efforts. <laughs> no, you can say it's because of the resurrected Christ. Resurrected Christ. And that whole, that's just kind of encouragement to you. And this kind of leads us in to what I want to talk about this morning. That's just kind of, you know, going to get you interested. As simply as <laughs> that what makes the transformation is the gospel. It's the truth of the gospel. This morning we're going to talk about, we could talk about the risen Savior, but I want to just talk about the truth of the gospel. And what is the gospel? 1 Corinthians 15 talks about he delivered to them, that is which is first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And then he rose from the grave on the third day according to the scriptures. And then there's the evidence of that. The evidence of the death is he was in a tomb, buried. The evidence of his resurrection is he showed himself to all sorts of people. That's the gospel in a nutshell. God, Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, and he rose from the grave. That's the gospel, and we need to submit and confess our, and our faith in the Lord Jesus. As you know, I've been preaching through the book of Titus. You can turn with me to Titus if, uh, if you haven't already. That's where we're going to be this morning. Titus, uh, we're going to look at two verses in Titus, or three verses, but two passages. A bit of a topical message, kind of, this morning. I'd like to speak on Titus because uh, <clears throat> not only, Titus has this theme of truth that leads to godliness. That the gospel transforms us and makes us godly. 
It causes us to live in such a way that reflects Christ in us. And as we talk about the evidence for the resurrection, not only we see it in scriptures, but I hope that we would remember that when we live our lives in accordance with the truth, according to sound doctrine, it is a testimony. It's loud and clear to our world that Christ is risen. Well, as we look at these two verses, we'll give you a brief outline. You turn with me to Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Well, that's where we'll start. But in chapter 2 and chapter 3, there are a series of exhortations followed by an explanatory motivation for why we should live according to those exhortations. You should conduct yourselves in these ways. And we're in the middle of verse 1 to 10, right? You guys, that's those of you that are with us. In chapter 2, we find exhortations in verse 1 to 10, and then we find the motivation in verse 11 to 15. We'll take a look in depth in that in a couple weeks. But in chapter 3, we'll see exhortations as well, a, a list of exhortations, verse 1 and 2. And then in verse 3 to 8, we'll find the motivation for observing and keeping those exhortations. If you compare the two motivations, you will find that the heart of each motivation is the gospel. It's the gospel. This morning, I, I want to take us, have us take a look at, at the gospel according to Titus. Recorded for us in these two verses, Titus 2.11, Titus 3, 4, and 5. And these are not only a motivations for us to, to worship our Lord this morning, those who believe in Jesus, those who believe in the gospel, but it's also for us an encouragement for us to live transformed lives as a testimony of the risen Christ. As an outline for us this morning, we're going to look at two glimpses of the gospel that motivate us to live transformed lives that testify the reality of the risen Savior. That's what we're going to be this day. So let's take a look then at these two verses, all right? The first glimpse we find in chapter 2, verse 11. And, uh, and before I would read it, let me, let me pray one more time. Uh, let's ask God's uh, spirit to lead. Father, we just pray that your spirit continues to fill us as we worship you. We know that you're our teacher, Lord. And we pray that your spirit would teach us your truths from your word, cause your word to go forth and not return void. Thank you for your word that declares for us the truth of the gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ, the truth of his death, and the truth of his resurrection. And Lord, we pray that even from the many of us who are believers here, who may be familiar with the gospel, cause us to hear it anew. Cause us to hear it with fresh ears, that we would not take these truths for granted, that it would cause us to be motivated to live our lives in a manner worthy of Christ. And Father, for those here who do not yet know Jesus, they're not sure where they, who Jesus is, where they stand with him. They're on shaky ground with regards to their salvation. They're standing with you. I pray that today you would open their eyes. Today you would give them new hearts. Open, give them a, a exchange their heart of stone for a heart of flesh. Father, that they would hear the truth of Christ and what he did for them. That they would turn and believe in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would be glorified through the preaching of your word. Thank you that Christ is risen this day. In Jesus' name, amen. The first glimpse we find is in chapter 2, verse 11, and that is we see when the grace of God appeared. That this, when the grace of God appeared is, a, is a, another way of basically saying the gospel, when Jesus Christ appeared on earth. Now, <clears throat> The key word in both gospel texts that we're going to look at today is this word appeared. So we have to kind of talk about what this word appeared means. This word appeared basically uh, is a Greek word that which we, which we, from which we derive the English word epiphany. Epiphany. Um, and uh, 
Now, just as a, an epiphany, kind of just a revelation, sometimes a revelation of God. We see sometimes people just use it all, even like, oh, I, I saw a light. You know, oh, I, got, I had a great idea, epiphany. They'll even use it that way. But it's, a, it's, a, it's appearing normally used of, of God, of dawn. Now, in secular Greek usage, this word meant or referred to the intervention of the various Greek gods uh, to when they would bring divine help, that only the gods could help, and so they would bring divine help. And so the idea is really of divine assistance, divine assistance. So this word appearing, it's not just that, oh, I just showed up. It's not just showing up, even though it's translated appearance, but it's the idea that he showed up to bring divine assistance. And we see this brought forth in Luke chapter 1, verse 78 to 79. There uh, in Luke 1, 78 79, Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, remember he uh, for, uh, began to, pro- when John was born, he began to prophesy. And he prophesied of the Messiah. And he talked about it. We're going to pick up in verse 78. Uh, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us. So that's talking about Jesus. And what, is, what does he visit us for? What's his purpose in coming? Verse 79. To shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. That word shine that we find here in verse 79 is the word epiphany, or the verb epiphany, epiphany. If I know, actually, but it's to shine. So it really is to bring assistance, divine assistance to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of light. It's translated to shine because some of those who sit in darkness, so they give us a sense of light appeared. And so they feel like it's appearing in the darkness to shine light because Jesus is the light of the world. But Jesus then appeared to bring divine assistance to those who sit in darkness, to those who sit in the shadows of death. He came to help basically those who were blind, to sit in darkness. They, they couldn't see. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4, 4, it tells us the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so they might not see the truth of the gospel, the light of the truth of the gospel. Everyone in this world, including ourselves, before we came to know Christ, were blinded by Satan. We could not see the truth. Not only that, but he came, and so now Jesus came to help us so that we could see, but he also came to provide divine assistance to those who are under the shadow of death, who are under the sense of doom, that death was approaching. He came to help those of us who were doomed. There was nothing we can do. And we, uh, By the way, I hope you were here last Friday, this past Friday. Um, man, uh, it was... Uh, just a wonderful time reflecting upon the, the death of Christ, but even better, reflecting upon the death of death and the death of Christ. The doom that all of us were facing as flesh and blood who can never inherit the kingdom of God, was re- we were rescued and delivered from because Christ came and appeared to, and died in our place and rose from the grave. And not only that, did he come to provide assistance to those who are blind, to those who are uh, doomed, but he also came to provide assistance for those who were lost. He came to guide our feet into the way of peace. All of us were lost. Uh, Isaiah 53 talks about all of us like sheep uh, had gone astray. Each of us, uh, all of us like sheep were, had gone astray, you know. We'd all gone and fallen our own ways. It talks about how we were all lost. We're like sheep. We're kind of just running around. We would never find anything uh, if it were not for Christ. And so 
we see then back to chapter 2, verse 11, really, when it says, for the grace of God has appeared, we see that, God, that Jesus Christ, when, this is a reference to Christ, when he came, he, personif- he was the manifestation of grace. He personified grace for us. He is God's grace in the flesh to us. It dem- he demonstrated God's unmerited favor to us, undeserved favor. That's what grace is, right? God's undeserved favor, unmerited favor, something we can't earn, something we don't deserve, we say. It's a gift. We can never earn nor deserve the gift of Jesus Christ. And what, specifically, what specifically we cannot earn or deserve is our salvation from sins. Christ came to bring salvation for us, to deliver us from our sins. And when we think of grace, it's all his salvation of us from our sins. It's all of grace. We can't help but think about Ephesians 2, 8, 9, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. What a wonderful truth. You know, when we think about this passage, that we're all saved by grace through faith. And all this, grace, salvation, faith, it's not of ourselves. Even faith, even faith is not of ourselves. Though we exercise faith in believing, all of it, grace, salvation, faith is the gift of God. So that it's not as a result of any works we do, so that no one may boast. You know, none of us were, have any reason to boast with regards to our salvation. Sometimes when we live the Christian life longer, we tend to sometimes forget that. And sometimes we fall into that, tra- that trap of thinking that, you know, I'm a good person. I'm, uh, I think God, I'm glad that God saved me. I'm a, it's like I'm a, I'm a worthy guy in some way. We might not say that directly, but it's in our minds sometimes. But the reality is that all of us were sitting in darkness. All of us were doomed. All of us were lost. And without Christ coming and appearing, we would still be there. We would still be there. But God sent his son to die on the cross and rise on the third day to save us. This is grace. Now, what makes this grace so amazing then, not only that it is grace, is that it says in the scriptures here, is that he appeared bringing salvation to all men, to all men. He didn't come bring salvation just to Israel, uh, but he came for Israel and for the Gentiles. He did not come for just some, like uh, just for me or just for you. He came for all men. He appeared bringing salvation to all men. And I believe that's what it's, and I want to take it for what that says. Straightforwardly, Jesus Christ came bringing salvation to all men. He came and died and rose from the grave to provide salvation for all. And if I can be specific, hopefully uh, you'll hear me out. That means all, all mankind. Not just all kinds of men, but literally every single man, woman, and child to ever live. You know, uh, <clears throat> this is where before you, some of those of us uh, faithful uh, Calvinists and uh, out here will pick up stones to, to stone the Arminian. Uh, let me just add this, <laughs> okay? Um, let me just add this. Uh, when I was in seminary, a wise pastor uh, told me, told a bunch of us in chapel. You know, when I get to the pastors that speak about, and 
Christ dying for all, he says, I preach that Christ died for all. Unlimited. And when Christ, you get the pastor that preach that Christ died for the elect, the few, the chosen, I preach that Christ died for the few, the elect, and chosen. You know, that's, uh, that's what I want to do today. <laughs> that's what I want to accomplish in the sense that Christ died for all men in that he provided salvation for all. He, made, he came to provide salvation for all. But when Christ died on the cross, he came and he affected, he applied that salvation to the elect, to the elect, to those who were chosen. Not just, and so, because that's simply what the text says. Sometimes those of us who believe in a limited atonement or particular redemption, that Christ died to save the elect, will miss the amazing grace in these facts, in these texts. His death and resurrection was sufficient for all. And efficient for the elect is sometimes what we say. It's not just say we say sufficient, but it wasn't really for you. It was sufficient for all. It was really for all, is the text. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, talks about God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So God desires all men to be saved, not just all kinds of evil, but all men. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men. And that's context God and all men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Again, referring to all men, the testimony given at the proper time. But before we get full blown Armenian here, we want to back up and go back to First Timothy four. Go to First Timothy four ten. It says Paul says here we have fixed our hope. We have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. And here's where we get the tension. Here's where we get the holy tension. And this is what we must do, because we want to preach the text instead of our theology, right? We've got to preach the text of those scriptures and not our theology. And this, the text of the scripture says this, that he is the Savior of all men, but especially of all believers. And so with that kind of tension in mind, in mind we want to, Jesus came and showed, manifested God's grace in that he brought salvation to all men, to all men. It's, and therefore, all men are under just punishment. When they, when they die in their unbelief, they will be justly deserved, or even more justly deserved, because they rejected the salvation of God. I like just another passage that just conveys this truth very well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God loved the world. God loved the world that he gave his son. God intended out of love and gave his son for the world to die and to be raised from the dead. However, it's that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is the grace of God. God's undeserved favor towards us. That Christ came 
and he shows God's grace to us, that which we never deserved, no one deserves, no one earns, and he brings salvation to all of us. We did not earn or deserve it. That's grace, and that actually calls us to worship. Whenever you receive anything that you know you deserve, don't deserve, you know you don't haven't earned, what should be our response? We should live our lives for to do our best to reflect and honor the one who showed grace towards us. You know, one of the best earthly examples of grace we all should be, I think the majority of us should be aware of, is our parents. Our parents are a constant reminder of grace towards us. When we were born in this world, we, didn't, we don't do anything for them. We're just crying and, yeah, and pooping, and oh, I don't think I really want to do that. But they show grace to us. They care for us. They feed us. They change us. And then they, you know, they provide us food. They, they uh, take care of us throughout the days, even though when we, as we grow older, we get into our, those years where we're just like really you know, brats. Our parents still love us. They show favor to us. They constantly care us. They teach us. That constant love that they show us is of grace. There's studies that show basically that, you know, honestly, the children and lives actually cause a great more pain to people than it's actually worth. But simply because when, but then parents testify that all it takes is for a child to simply go up and them and say, oh, I love you, mom and daddy. And it's like the, it's like the parents say it's all worth it. That's why it's because everything else is so much more work for what they get out of it if they if you will get what get to get out of it. But and not just about that's true. <laughs> that's true. Um, but it is grace. Our parents are, are grace in an imperfect way, by the course. But God, and if you appreciate the grace of your parents, how much more the grace of our God. Our God provides everything to us in Christ Jesus. Everything to us. Well, this leads to our second, I want to lead, lead us to our second glimpse of the gospel. And that is in verse three, chapter 3, verse 4 and 5. And that is when the kindness of God appeared. When the kindness of God appeared. Uh, Titus chapter 3, verse 4 and 5. When the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared is how it starts. You notice the, the, the verse there starts with the conjunction, uh, but. So it tells us that it's really connected with what begins. And what begins is, is the contrast. There's a contrast here. In verse 3, it says, For, here's the reason why we should live in these ways, conduct ourselves in these ways, because, of, because we're all sinners, but Christ came to save us. That's why we should live this way, because we were sinners, but Christ came to save us. When kind, the kindness of God our Savior, his love of mankind appeared. We were once all foolish, disobedient, deceived sinners, enslaved to sin and hatred. That's a good word, by the way. I think Christians among us, we, we have a little bit too much hatred. Or maybe that's just me. That's the sin. We need to be known more for our love. But that changed when our Savior appeared, Right? The trans, that period, our sin was changed, or our sinful condition was changed when our Savior appeared to save us, the kindness of God. And in these two verses, we can basically, I want to elaborate a little more, because Titus 3.5 is such a, if you know your, kind of your witnessing verses, it's a key verse. It's a key verse uh, with regards to the gospel. But, uh, so we'll, we'll kind of elaborate a little bit. So first of all, we'll start off with the God of our salvation. Who is this God who saves us? 
Verse 4, when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared. The wording here is similar to chapter 2, verse 11, that the grace of God has appeared, brings salvation to all men. They both speak of the appearance of Christ. Um, and, but here, and here the, it talks about the kindness of God, whereas the other verse talks about the grace of God. But there's a modification here to the word God. It says, this is the kindness of God, our Savior. And what's kind of really cool about this is when we think about Savior, who do we think of? We generally think of Jesus, right? Jesus is my Savior and Lord, I'll say. But here is speaking of God the Father. God the Father. And we can go back to, go to verse 6 to kind of see that it's connect, that is God the Father. But this is God the Father who is our Savior as well. And of course, he's the, he is the author of salvation. He's the one who, who sent his son. And so God is our Savior as well. But just kind of for us to understand, this is talking about God, the Father. He's the subject here. When we see, we see, that, or we see that when he sent his son to appear on earth, it was a demonstration of God's kindness to us and God's love for mankind. The word kindness here is a, well, it means basic generosity, goodness that we show to others. Kindness is something that's kind of lacking in our days, you know, sometimes. Uh, I think I'm just, I've lived too long in a sinful world. <laughs> when people show kindness to me, you know, especially if they're strangers, if I know you, okay, I'm not going to think this way, so it's okay. But when a stranger comes and shows you kindness, what do you, what do, you do? You're probably, all, you know, all you probably say, oh, thank you, I appreciate it. you're such a good person, right? No, but me, I'm saying, what do you want? What do you want, you know? I'm, I'm like that. I'm just, so, I'm just a cynic. I'm just, I'm just so distrustful of others. I don't know why. It's just my nature. Um, uh, skeptic, if you will. Um, but I, I, I have trouble sometimes express, seeing kindness. But the fact is, God's kindness is perfect. It's not something, you know, uh, is perfect. it is perfectly generous and good. And he shows it towards humankind. And God shows his kindness by sending us his son. And when he sends us to sin, we don't have to say, oh, what do you want, you know? Well, he doesn't want something else. He wants to repent and believe, okay? He does. But it's for our good. It's for our good. As for the Greek word here that talks about his love for mankind, it's not as the kindness of God or Savior, but also his love for mankind. That love for mankind, it's not the word like agape that we think of, but the love for mankind is actually one word in the Greek. It's the word from which we get philanthropy, philanthropy, the love of man. And you guys know what philanthropists are, right? Philanthropists are those basically who are so rich, they have so much money, they don't know what to do with it. So they throw parties and, and events so that they can then give to charity. You know, that's kind of what they do. Philanthropists, they give a lot of money, they can raise a lot of money, and they just give away to different causes. Philanthropists. And they do that as a living. It's just kind of really amazing that when you read about people like this, wow, that's cool. Um, but now, we talk about philanthropists in this world. We can think of some great ones or good ones out there. Well, they're sinners, okay? Um, just to let you know, but you can respect what they've done. Uh, there are men like Bill Gates or Warren Buffett who have given so much to great causes. Uh, I think in our days, we kind of hear a little about Mark Zuckerberg uh, making big donations along with his wife and, and kind of just other wealthy people doing that. They're philanthropists. They, they want to do good. They, they, they have a love for mankind where they want to give money. And, and you know, I don't know their motivation. I, I trust that, that it's you know, sincere in, in what they do. But despite all of the greatest of man's philanthropists, there is no greater philanthropist, no perfect philanthropist than God our Savior. For he gave his one and only son. 
He gave something that no one else could give. He gave something or that a gift that is one of a kind. He's the only begotten. He's the only one that is like a father. He is his very son. And God gave him his son, whom he had the, the greatest affection. Uh, uh, affection and love for, the intimate love and from, from eternity past, he gave him for us that he would come and take on flesh and blood. He would walk on this earth and then on the cross he would experience God's full wrath. You know, when you think about that, I still can't get over it, especially now as a father. I can't get over the fact that God how great and immense the love of God is, the, 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 the kindness of God, the, the generosity of God, that he would give his own child, his son, for others. I feel bad when I just raise my voice at my daughter, you know? Give her up for sinners? That'd be hard. That'd be hard. It's unthinkable. But God does that. God gave up his son for sinners. That is a kindness that, that is so immense that none of us could deserve or earn. You know, when we give Christmas gifts, we, uh, we'll calculate it. We think about what our budget is. We think about maybe, oh, how close that person is. So, you know, if you like them, you give them a big, bigger gift. If you don't like them, you give them a little pebble. Uh, <clears throat> you think about what they might like. Oh they, oh, they like bread, so I'll give them some bread. Oh, they like this or that. I'll give them that. So you, you just say, well, what may be good for them? When God thought to give you a gift, God in his generosity, goodness, and love for mankind gave us the very best gift that could ever be given. He gave us his son. He gave him to us. And in his death and resurrection, we receive the greatest gift that God could ever give. We who are doomed in darkness, blinded, lost, God gave us his son. Kindness of God, this is our God. That's how kind he is. He's the loving that he is. There's a second truth about our salvation. We see the God of our salvation, but we look at the basis of our salvation. Why does he do this? Why does he show us such kindness? Why does he show us such love? Is there something special about us? Does he say, well, you know, I just like Henry. I'm going to save him. He's such a good guy. He will be a good guy. Well, we read on. He saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. See, here we find the main idea of this passage. He saved us. God saved us. He refers back to our God, our Savior, the God the Father. God saved us, but it's not on the basis of our, of our deeds. It's not based on anything we do. There are some people who look, who, and this is where, you know, the Arminians definitely get it wrong. They, they, look, they believe that God will say, looks all the way into the future, and he will see, oh, so-and-so is going to believe in me, and so-and-so is going to believe in me, and therefore... I'm going to choose him. I'm going to save him. No, God does not look upon us and how good we're going to be, how great we're going to be, and save us. God saves us not based on any deeds, and even deeds which we've done in righteousness. In righteousness. Think about that. We who are clothed in righteousness. God doesn't even look into our lives right now as Christians and says, oh, I'm saving Henry because he preached that great sermon on Easter Sunday on April 13th. 
or 16th. He doesn't look for it and say, oh, you know, I, I look for it. And I saw, I saw that's, uh, you know, <laughs> I saw him going and helping that little old lady cross the street in you know, 2020. Oh, I'm going to save him. He's such a great guy. No, it's not for any deeds we've done in our righteousness. It's not by any deeds. It's not even the deeds we've done after the fact. Deeds which, by the way, are all accomplished by Christ in us. But God saves us based on the basis of and accordance with his mercy. His mercy. Here we find them, this idea of God's mercy, God's compassion, his pity. Sorry to say, when God looks upon us, when in our sinful, fallen state, he does not say, oh, there's something redeemable about that person. He saw us in our, in our sinfulness, in our utter depravity, total, in our total depravity. He saw the wickedness of our hearts, and it was ugly. He saw the enmity that we had towards him, yet he still loved us. He chose us from eternity to pass for salvation. It's out of his love. He didn't give us the punishment we deserve. Instead, he put that punishment on Christ. When Christ gives his when God gives the gift of Christ. He didn't do it because of any relationship that we have with him. He doesn't do it because he knew we would immediately, because of our, we would love him in return. He did not do it because of anything special about ourselves. He simply showed, gave us his son out of his kindness, out of his, because of his mercy towards us. He had pity and compassion upon us. God's mercy we see here. Why he, it was why we're saved. And purely by that. It's on the basis of his mercy. Not on the basis of anything we've done. On the basis of God's mercy and grace. Paul moves on. And lastly, to show us the means of our salvation. We see why God saved us. Not because of our deeds, but because of his mercy. Paul moves on to the how. How did God save us? The means of our salvation is shown in the latter part of verse 5. It says, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. That's how he saves us. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. This is sort of a, uh, kind of, it's it's a slightly difficult to interpret passage. But this phrase um, basically modifies this main verb of salvation, the salvation that we have. And some people here, some have kind of wrong interpreted this, washing, regenerating. So, oh, they, they see baptism here. And so they think, oh, this must be teaching baptismal regeneration. But that would be simply another form of salvation by works, which Paul has basically refuted elsewhere in, in scriptures. And, and in fact, he just refuted earlier in the same very verse, right? He said it's not on the basis of deeds. So he can't be saying it's on the basis of baptismal regeneration. Uh, Water baptism regeneration. Uh, <clears throat> Rather, the word washing here is used in a figurative sense, a metaphorical sense for cleansing, right? You know, water washing. So let's talk about spiritual cleansing. Cleansing from what? Cleansing from our sins. 
And this cleansing from sin, this washing that he does, he cleanses from sin, how is, uh, it, is, it involves two things. It involves regeneration and it involves renewing. It's a washing of regeneration and a washing of renewing. First of all, let's talk about each of these things. Regeneration literally is, means born again. It's the, this, um, this noun here that is going to be is, uh, can, is, can be used in a verbal form to mean to be born again. It is the act by which God gives us new life. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul writes there, he says, uh, I don't have it on the, for Kino, but he says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things pass away. Behold, the new things have come. See, when we come to Christ, when, we, when we're saved, we become born again. We're born again. We're a new creation. That has to take place in order for us to be saved, this regeneration. Secondly, not only is there regeneration that's necessary, but at that moment, God begins also renewing our lives. There's a washing, a cleansing of sins that takes place also by renewing. And this word renewing is, uh, is the same word we find in Romans 12 too, of the believer being transformed by the renewing of their mind, right? So it is the process which we call sanctification. So what we have here really is regeneration, being born again, that, that moment that takes place right before justification, that, that God, work of God that he, he accomplishes. How are we cleansed from our sins? Well, it takes a work of the regeneration, first of all, a transformation of our hearts, a change in this dark, doomed, blind, lost soul so that I can actually open my eyes and see because the God of this world has blinded me. It takes a God of heaven to open that eyes. That is this idea of regeneration. But it also takes this cleansing that requires, involves renewing. As soon as he regenerates us, there's that response of faith, and there's a renewing that begins from the moment of salvation, the moment of justification. That sanctification begins. A transformation begins. And this is all accomplished by the instrument, the, the instrument of the, all this that God does uses is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does a work of regenerating our hearts. The Holy Spirit begins to do the work of renewing our hearts, which God is, through which God washes us, cleanses us from our sins. It's like a Now, move on. This combination of washing with water, being born again, and spirit. There, if you kind of know your scriptures, you know that John, Jesus used it in John chapter 3 when he talked to Nicodemus. He talks about you must be born again, and you must be born of water and blood and, and, and the spirit. And in John 3, 5, but really, we won't go there because we'll go back to Jesus when he was referring to all that. He really is referring to Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25 to 27. Go back with Ezekiel 36, 25, 27 with me, and we'll see these same truths come out, this washing, this cleansing, this regeneration, this renewing, this, and the Holy Spirit involved here. God promises when in the new covenant, he says, then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. See the emphasis of water. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. God's going to cleanse, the one, cleanse them from their sins. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. So here it is, regeneration. I will remove the heart of stone and from your, fle- and from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, a heart that beats. 
So it's regeneration. And I will put my spirit within you. Here's the Holy Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And here's the renewal so that you will be careful to observe my ordinances. This, so what we see then, really, this, in the promise of the new covenant, promises is this promise that, that we are saved not by any of our works, not by any of our deeds that we ever will do, but it's all an act of God. God does everything in salvation. He does it all from the cleansing of our sins to he first regenerates our hearts so that we would repent and believe. And then along with that, he renews us towards Christ-likeness by the Holy Spirit. Salvation is, and you kind of think, well, this is is speaking of the salvation in all totality from its justification to its sanctification and glorification involved here. God is, does a, God is doing, basically, in salvation, God does a heart transplant in our lives, doesn't he? He gives us a whole new life when we believe, when, uh, so that we may believe in Christ. You know, we don't want to make the mistake. Some of us, uh, some believe that it's because you believe that you're regenerated. But when we look at um, John chapter 3, we'll see that, really, it's regeneration. God does a work in changing our hearts first that we might believe We all had hearts of stone, a dead, a dead, spiritually dead heart. Only God could give us a new heart so that we could then respond to God's offer of salvation. It's all by the Spirit. Apart from God, we're dead. Only God, only when God gave us new life and began renewing us, could then we believe and respond in faith. Now, in this room, when you think about this, this is really helpful for us because there are, when I look in this room, there are a lot of smart people here. There are a lot of smart people. You guys are some gifted folks. You guys are ed- highly educated. We're in San Francisco, so we have some of the most, you know, smartest people in the world gathered here. And then there are some of us that are not so smart. That's okay, okay? There's a, my mom and dad told me, you know, there's always going to be someone smarter than you and someone, you know, on the other side. <laughs> so, and that's what keeps us healthy and humble. But you know what? Though we are all, there are many smart people and capable people here, none of us were smart enough to realize that we were dead in our sins. None of us were smart enough to realize that we needed our Savior. None of us were. Sometimes as new believers, you kind of hear guys, you know, got saved in college. I was one of those guys, you know. Uh, and I used to tell my testimony how basically I was, and I'm not going to tell my testimony, I'll just tell you, a hypo, you know, what commonly people say. You know, I was a college student, and then I, I really started seeking the truth, and, and then I, I started taking comparative religion classes. I researched this religion, this religion, this religion, and, and I apologize if it's, is it close to any of your, your, your uh, testimonies. But you know, then say, and then I came to realize that the gospel is the best. Man, I'm like, oh, it, when they say it like this, and I, you never, I never correct them because like, oh, okay, I know what they mean. That's from the perspective. That's what, it's, that's what they did. But listen to the testimony 5, 10, 15 years down the road, and it will be changed. Trust me, it changes because then they're going to start seeing, oh, man, you know, when I was in college, I was so lost. I didn't know what I was doing. And I, I, I even, you know, started taking comparative religions classes. I was hearing all these different religions. But it was God who showed me the truth of the gospel. He showed me that Christ is superior. I, I wouldn't have been able to figure it out, you know, but it was God who opened my eyes to see the truth. And that, that's what inevitably happens to all of us. You re- we start realizing much of what we do, why we even saved, is not because of our own deeds. It's not of our needs. It's not even because of, I believed in him that I got saved. It's first you dial it all the way back. God chose me, and then God called me, 
God regenerated me, and I believed. And I respond, I return from myself, believe. That, and that's all of God. God did all this, right? This is a wonderful truth of the gospel. It's all of God. We just, you know, we, and we should give praise to God for that. Um, let me just end with one final verse. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That's what he did. That's just, uh, all the ideas of, of washing and regeneration and through the word of God. It saves us. You know, we, we hopefully this is just a, just a brief overview of the gospel. Many of this is kind of, I trust, believers, that this is not new for you. Uh, it shouldn't be new for you. This should be old hat for you. But I hope that it's not old news to you. I hope it's always good news, exciting news. When you hear talk about good news, it's something that's exciting to us. It exuberates us. It makes us ecstatic about it. Makes it and what's more, it transforms us. When we hear news, it should transform the way we live our lives. May these two passages remind us of the divine intervention that brought about our salvation. You know, that in Jesus Christ, the grace of God and the kindness of God were manifested so that through his death and resurrection, we might be saved. May these gospel truths resonate in your heart. May they reverberate in worship. And may they reverberate in a life transformed because of God and for God. So that when others see our lives... They're not going to want to look about, talk about the empty tomb. They're not going to want to research about the, the testimonies of a book that's like 2,000 years. That's ancient, but I don't want to hear about that. I don't want to hear about those kinds of things. They, they might not be able to have time. It will give you the time of day for discussions of the, of, the, of the lines of evidence. But the one evidence that they cannot de- de- neglect or ignore is the evidence that stands right before them in you, in you, brothers and sisters, in us, we are living, breathing testimonies of the power of Christ transforming us. Has Christ transformed you? He has, right? I've heard your testimonies. Christ has transformed you. Christ is transforming us. We still have much work to do until Christ returns. Let's go forth. Let's, let's make sure we listen to the, the words of Titus as we're going to head on forward, that we need to conduct ourselves in accordance with the gospel that we have godliness that reflects the truth so that people will know that this Savior that we're talking about is not just something we talk about in a book, but he's, he makes a difference in our lives. He changes lives for his glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your truth. Thank you for the, the truth of your word. And I know that this morning we talked about different elements of your, of your gospel. But Lord, it's really simple that Christ died for our sins, and he rose from the grave. And Lord, this is the message according to your scriptures, and it is our message that we proclaim. But Lord, this message that we have believed and have received and proclaim is a message that is to transform our lives. It's a message that should cause us to live in light of this gospel truth. Help us to heed the scriptures when it causes us to live, to observe all that you commanded us. Help us not to neglect grace, to abuse your kindness and mercy, Father, that we would, in dependence upon you, walk in holiness, walk in Christ-likeness, so that we might testify the reality of our risen Savior. Thank you for Jesus this day. Thank you for this time in your word. 
Help us continue to worship you throughout this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.